It's hard to believe next week we will officially begin Advent here, and that's always a pretty beautiful time for us. Uh, we are a church that really celebrates the tradition of Advent, and we'll have our candles and readings that will begin next week. So as we shift from Thanksgiving and move into this season of Christmas, this is a really, really, really ripe opportunity. It's a rare opportunity that only comes once a year where for whatever reason, people tend to be more sensitive to the things of God. And I think this is because in many ways, they are challenged by some of the things going on in their life. The holiday seasons tend to highlight the best and the worst of what we're dealing with. And so the end of this little mini-series, and we believe on Christian mission, us engaging people and caring for them, serving them in the way Jesus first served us, the timing of this was not coincidental. It has really been my hope that as we wrap up this little section today, that maybe the teaching will wrap up, but the application in our lives will really just begin. And so today we're looking at this last message in this section of teaching from John 20 about Christian mission. And Christian mission simply means we sort of model in the way that God entered the world to, to provide us with a great Savior and redemption, the way that God stuck his hand into humanity with Jesus and actually serve the world, we're talking about this same rhythm being present in our life. And so the premise of what we've been studying these past weeks highlights a pretty important heart attitude that people have. It's one that is central to living a meaningful life in Jesus. It's one that needs to be in our hearts to follow Jesus well. And simply put, it's when we care about something, no matter what it is, or when we care about someone, we are often compelled to live in sacrifice for that thing or that person. In other words, our love and devotion, like we just sang, for something or someone tends to orient or reorient our life around that person or that thing. And so throughout this teaching, I'm going to be very brief here, but you can listen to the two messages prior to this if you want this unpacked in its entirety. Through this teaching, we've said over and over that when a person truly loves and experiences the love and peace of God, that's what we're reading about in John chapter 20. You have the disciples right after Jesus' resurrection, and in the very same breath, he, as he commands them to go into the world and serve the world in the name of Jesus, to bring the hope and the light and the life of Jesus to the world. In that very same breath, he offers them his peace. And we talked about how that's an important combination because I think this is something that distressed them. They really were sort of figuring out how to, how to sort of obey this incredibly powerful command right after Jesus came out of the tomb. And they're, they're sort of mired in fear right now. That's what's happening. They eventually overcome this fear and really begin to obey this command of Jesus. And the point I'm trying to make here is that when Jesus gives us his love, when we recognize his peace, there should be somewhat of a natural result that, that happens in us. It's a Christ-centered compulsion, is what we said, to live sacrificially for God and to share that same love and peace with others. And so it has truly been my prayer over these weeks that God would use these teachings, these verses, these truths to compel our hearts to share Christ through our word and our deed. We're not just observing a story about the disciples. There is a powerful truth that God wants us to apply in our hearts and lives uh, that we learn from the disciples. And so with all this in mind today, I want to add a layer to this truth of mission. I want to give us some practical instruction on how we can live in such a way that our lives can actually be a platform for showing God's love to others. And this will be very important because there's a very strong section in that letter where I'm encouraging you all to be this for somebody in your life over this season, to use your life as a platform to distribute mercy and grace, God's love and care. To do this, we're going to briefly revisit some verses from Ephesians that we studied a couple of years ago because there's something pretty profound that happens in them. The Apostle Paul writes the book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus, and in them he does something both poetic and deeply spiritual. 
One of the benefits of having the Bible the way we have it is we can sort of read these writings, these teachings from Jesus in the Gospel of John, and then many, many, many years later, we can actually connect the application of these teachings. We can see how somebody named Paul is living them out and how that's affecting a community of people in a city that is largely unknown. They don't know the Lord at this point in history. So it's beautiful that we can sort of fast forward and rewind, and that's what I want to do today. The mission that we've talked about in John 20 is really concretely applied in Ephesians. And it's in this book that Paul references our lives as being like an aroma, a fragrance to God. And so it's interesting when you think about this, Paul tells us that the way we conduct ourselves in the world is meant to be something that's aromatic to God. That when God sort of smells our presence and sees what we're doing, he actually deeply cares about it and affirms it and is pleased by it. In fact, it's one of the ways that we can accomplish his mission. Truly, when we live in his mission, it is something that deeply pleases God. It brings a smile to his face. And so this idea is what I want to talk about this morning. It's the only we believe truth that I want to share with you. And I want to look at it in two key areas. The first is we're going to talk a little bit about this idea of being a fragrant aroma. And then we're going to look at uh, four very simple and practical steps that we can apply to our lives to, to be a platform for grace to be a platform to love and serve our neighbor in the time of the year when we celebrate Jesus serving us. So the only truth I want to share with you this morning, the big one is anyways, we believe when your life is a sweet aroma to your God, he will use you to do great things for his mission. And we see this clearly in Ephesians 5, 1, 2. John 20, we get the command. Ephesians 5, we read this. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You've probably noticed already that before we even get to any type of application, walking in the way of love, we're commanded to follow the example of God. The literal example we're reading about in John 20. The love of Jesus is so substantial, it is so poured out on us that he's willing to die for us. This is the example we're being called to follow here in Ephesians 5. And in Scripture, it's very clear that the way we follow this example is important to God. It's very clear that God loves it when our lives become a sweet aroma to him when we press into this reality and in imperfect ways live like Jesus did. And so there's literally a theology of how we smell in the Bible, not necessarily from the way we care for our bodies, although that is important in the modern Western world. I'm encouraging you to take care of yourself in all ways. This is not talking about the aroma of our actual bodies. You might consider it being like the aroma of our soul, the aroma of who we deeply are, the aroma of our identity in Jesus. And this aroma, this New Testament aroma, is found in the Old Testament sacrificial system. You can't fully understand this unless you understand that. And so in the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, they're first called to give sacrificial offerings for the forgiveness of sin. And one of the ways they did that was through this thing called the burnt offering. And the symbolism of that offering, the burnt offering, sort of was supposed to show that when, when somebody obeyed this system with a genuine heart, when they really went to God with a repentant heart, they would burn this offering and that scent would ascend into heaven. And that was considered an incredibly pleasant smell to God. In other words, it was God's people who were deeply pursuing a relationship with their Father, with their God in heaven, and they were recognizing that God was able to not only forgive them of sin, but to sustain them in their everyday lives. God is deeply pleased when we press into him like this. And so to put it another way, the sacrificial love and obedience displayed through that offering is something that God values. And this is exactly what Paul is referencing here in the New Testament. He's talking about this Old Testament system applying to our New Testament lives. So the same language describes how we are serving God on our mission, how we are sacrificially serving Jesus and carrying out his mission. And he says in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 15, 
this. I want you to sort of hear a, this, this in Ephesians really drilled home in 2 Corinthians. It's almost like there's a progression in his writing. He's speaking about the purpose of the aroma of our lives in the world. He says this, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal pr- procession, and uses us to spread, think about this, to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So this idea of aroma is in a lot of writings. Not only is it it rooted in the Old Testament sacrificial system, but we can see here that Paul is saying we literally carry the scent of Jesus in our lives. When we are the type of people who are pressing into this type of love and sacrifice, when people see us, what God is saying is that their soul is smelling something or should be smelling something. And it should be directly leading them to the scent of Jesus. That's a profound theology if you think about that. Our lives aromatically are meant to sort of bring a great scent to the earth that we live on. And so if you're a student of the Bible, you know, I want to sort of make this clear, that Paul isn't saying we got to go back to a burnt offering system. We'll lose our contract in the theater if we start lighting stuff on fire. It's never going to work. But he is making this application that what is now burning is us. And what's happening here is this idea of the cross, the the foundation of these offerings, all of this that we're talking about in the New Testament, finds its root in what we just read in John 20 over these past weeks. The greatest scent God has ever smelled of love and obedience and sacrifice is what Jesus did on the cross for us. It was there that he once and for all satisfied this this need to atone. There's no need to do burnt offerings anymore because Jesus has addressed that fully. It isn't that the system was wiped away. It's that Jesus actually fulfilled the obligation of the system. Therefore, the sacrifice is one and done now. We press into Jesus' sacrifice, not into the system. And what he's saying here in both Corinthians and Ephesians is that Jesus giving himself up for us because he loved us is without question the most visible example of what God sees and understands sacrifice and obedience to be in our lives. That is the standard that has been set. And it's why Jesus says what he says to the disciples in John chapter 20. His commission, this this sort of embryonic idea of the Great Commission, it finds its root in John chapter 20. It is the foundation of everything we've been studying. It is the authority of how we actually get on mission. And it is what gives Paul the authority to, to recommand this to us and to live by example in these areas. And so in both places, Jesus' words, Paul's life, both places in the scripture, God wants us to see that Jesus going to the cross for us was a fragrant offering and a sweet smell to him. There was something really pleasant about that to God. Now this begs an interesting question with a, with a major, major life application. How can God describe the death of his son as a fragrant aroma? Because when we think about death or this type of challenge here, it's interesting. God is viewing this as favorable. There is something right about it. But when we look at the cross, at least rightly, we should look at it as an instrument of judgment. It's a, it's a place where a man died. That's what the cross teaches us. Well, this teaching gives us an answer to that question. And we can be confident, first and foremost, that God wasn't sort of sadistically happy about seeing his son suffer on the cross. It is the necessary sacrifice that needs to be made in order for us to be brought back into relationship with God. I don't think there was any pleasure that God took in seeing his son die. I think there was something much more substantial happening here. He takes great joy in the ideas, the attitudes that Jesus displays when he goes to the cross for us. Because remember, God the Father and Jesus the Son... They're, they're in alignment here. This isn't like one forced the other to do something. 
they, I mean, we're not even talking about the Holy Spirit here, but there's a great congruence that these folks have with each other. So when Jesus goes to the cross, he does it. He does it with a good heart, with a right attitude. And so you see inherent in Jesus' sacrifice are the characteristics of mission. They're the attitudes that God really desires us to have in our own lives. They stem from God, they prove that he loves us, and they serve as the motivation for why we need to love others in the very same way. And so the reason God can look at the cross and his son on it and be pleased is because of the motive of the heart that is on the cross. And it is in these characteristics that we find the application for mission in our lives. Simply put, these, there are two foundational mission attitudes that have to be present in our lives if you want to be a sweet aroma to God. The application of these knows no boundaries. The way you serve or what you do with your hands and your words is often connected to the opportunities you have in life, your abilities and skills, the passions of your heart. That is a, that's a never-ending well of places to go. But you will never get into loving and sacrificing and serving others in an obedient way like Jesus does if we miss the heart of why Jesus does this with such a good heart. And so as we begin to move into application, deep application now, I want you to know that what you and I do with what we've studied about mission over these past weeks is really a direct evidence of how deeply you and I believe what we've studied. Because we're now talking about how God calls us to pattern our lives after the example Jesus set for us on the cross. That's what Paul says, follow that example. We're now called to share the very same peace that he shared with the disciples in the very same way that he shared it with us first. So in John, Ephesians, and 2 Corinthians, God is literally saying the aroma of your life and of my life is, is it pleases God. When you and I live a life that is defined by sacrifice and joyful servitude for others, just like Jesus did for us, that is an aroma that God deeply values. He cares about that, and it brings a smile to his face as he observes our lives. So to get a handle on this, I want to briefly look at these two attitudes that Jesus displays for us on the cross Sacrifice and servitude, those are the two things I want to talk about. And I want to see how he now calls us to embody the same lifestyle for others. The first and sort of foundational attitude we see in everything Jesus does, culminating on the cross, is that Jesus lives his life as a complete sacrifice for God and others throughout his life and his death. In his life, as he's alive, he also lives for the glory of his Father in heaven and the good of the people around him. And he does the same thing in his death. There's never a moment in his life where that is, that is not a priority to him. And so the sacrificial language used here is the most clear and powerful motivation for why we as Christians are being given this mission command in John 20. In John 20, Jesus just gave his life. So like the proof is in the pudding there. He just did it and just came out of the tomb. In Ephesians 5.2, Paul is referencing this event. He's talking about atonement in 5.2. He's talking about what the cross accomplishes for us. Many things, only one that we'll have time to address today. So atonement, in case you don't know, simply means it's the act of bringing back two estranged parties. It's, it's sort of taking party A and party B and atoning in a way to where the two are reconciled again. That's what the cross does for us. And in the scripture, the two parties that we're talking about are a holy God and a fallen people, disconnected from God because of sin. It's extremely important to make this connection. And here is why. In our modern culture, People have become expert at disconnecting the deeds of Jesus from the clearly stated purpose of why Jesus did what he did. There's something different about the deeds when you understand the root of why the deeds are being done. And it's funny that we often like to talk about the poetic notion that he died for us. That's a beautiful truth. But sometimes we're less comfortable talking about why he had to die for us. This is the foundation of why we should be thankful. His entire mission was meant to end in his sacrifice on the cross. His whole life always was moving towards that end. 
so that he could atone for the sins of the world and bring a final restoration between God and us. And so his whole life is lived in the service of others because he understands the dire condition every person on earth is in. We are separated from God. We're in a position where we need something to mend that crack. It's a condition so serious that Jesus leaves heaven. That's what we'll start talking about next month. He comes to the earth. He not only lives for us, but he also dies for us. He not only lives for us, but he suffers in our place. And he does this for our benefit. It's a love and a mission so important to him that he now calls us to carry on with it. And then we do this in the power of the Spirit, his Holy Spirit. That's the peace he breathed into them. He gave them his Holy Spirit, gave them his peace, and then commissioned them to care for the world that they live in in the name of Jesus. That's the whole premise of John 20. And so this begs another interesting question. Why is it that Jesus lives a life of sacrifice like this for us? Well, because he deeply understands the needs of humanity. And I think this is part and parcel for us wanting to care for other people. Sacrifice, I think, becomes more substantial in our lives when we have great empathy and sympathy, depending on what the situation is, for those in our lives who are, who are in need, whatever that need is. Jesus looks at the world and recognizes that we need him. And he's willing to live sacrificially on our, half, on our behalf to, to accomplish that, to provide that need for us. And all of this is because of his great love for us. And so there's a very deep mission reality that has to be pointed out in this truth. If we ever want to get to the place where we accept this invitation that Jesus gives us to be on mission, we have to make the connection between studying these truths and actually living these truths out in our lives. Here is the connection. The degree to which you and I understand the need for Jesus' love and sacrifice in our own life. Let's forget about what we do for a moment. Because how we understand our need for Jesus really determines how we care for or don't care for the needs that other people have in our lives or their lives. The degree to which you and I understand the need for Jesus' love and sacrifice in our lives is going to be directly reflected in the sense of urgency that you and I have in sharing his love and sacrificing for others. In other words, there's a really deep connection between how deeply you see the need for Christ's love and grace in your own life and the level of sacrifice you are likely going to be showing to others because of it. For example, um, think about folks who are hungry. That's actually a real problem in Volusia County. Uh, folks who are hungry. It's one thing to look at somebody who is hungry, right? It's another thing to have experienced really significant hunger pains in your life. There's a different level of empathy there when that happens. This is the idea behind this sacrifice. When we really recognize the significance of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, his love and his care for us, when that is experienced, when you feel that hunger pain, that is when you actually begin to care in ways that are more significant and substantial because you're tapping into the very rhythms of who Jesus is. And so I like to use this example. It's the only one I use here because I think it's the best one to describe this. Think about this, this sort of sense of urgency, of sort of recognizing Christ's presence in our own life in such a significant way that it compels us to share through our words and deeds, our generosity, our hands, his love and grace with others. Think about this example from this way. If, if you were uh, in a hospital, let's just say it was three in the morning and you were sitting in an ER room, you would expect to see a different level of personal sacrifice and urgency, let's just say from an on-call surgeon who's called in to perform a surgery on a boy at 2 a.m. Maybe there's a really bad cut on the knee or the leg and it requires some stitches, right? We would say that's, you know, that's not a good thing, but that's certainly not what we would consider hyper, hyper urgent, okay? However, if you were sitting in that room and a bunch of people caught a kid in, uh, you know, a 10-year-old boy in on a stretcher, and there were multiple gunshot wounds, you would probably have a much different level of urgency applied to that situation. 
And think about this. So the person who's responding to this, the first situation, you know, if you call a skilled trauma surgeon in at 2 a.m. in the morning to do stitches, there would likely be a, a, an after conversation about the need to get somebody up that early in the morning for something like that. While the second one, if that surgeon heard that call about multiple gunshot wounds and didn't come in, there would be a great concern. In other words, I'm pretty sure that hospital staff would want to know why that person didn't make the connection of, you know, getting up, getting out of bed, and getting to that hospital as soon as you can. That person would likely drop everything they were doing to get there to deal with that issue. And there's a parallel here, because our physical bodies are often the greatest way we can understand our spiritual lives. The parallel here is throughout history, you'll see the greatest servants of God always had a healthy sense of urgency. I'm not talking about pressured or some you know, false pressure. What I'm saying is, is there's a healthy sense of urgency when it comes to doing the work of God. It means faith is not a hobby. It's not something we tap into when we get time. It's actually something that is a rudder driving our lives. There's a healthy understanding, a healthy sense of urgency to accomplish and do the work of God. They know what they are doing matters. They know that their words matter, that their deeds matter, that their sacrificial lives matter, that when they bring love and hope to people, they know that that matters. It matters in this life and in the next life. They are aware of that, very likely because they have experienced that love, that hope, that sacrificial generosity, all of the benefits that the kingdom of God pour out on us. They have felt that and experienced that. They understand it with their head, it is deeply rooted in their hearts, and they live it out with their hands. That is different than observing sacrificial generosity. It's much different when you actually experience it. And that is the root, the foundation of our faith. Christ on the cross, John 20. These people deeply believe that their main purpose in life was to love God and spread his peace above all else by help, helping others to see and sense the grace of Jesus. Whether that was in what we would call significant ways or mundane ways. And I want to make an argument that there is no such thing as a significant or mundane way to serve Jesus. Whatever you do, wherever you do it, when you do it in the name of Jesus, that is a significant thing. That's what I would like to say. When you become a shoulder to cry on, when you meet a need, if you're not on the news when you do that, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you're actually, the TV set that should matter most to us is the one that God is watching. It pleases God deeply when we live like this. And that should be all the reward we ever want. Living like this is the foundation for why Jesus goes to the cross. And it also feeds the second reason why he's on the cross. He not only goes to the cross with this good heart, with this, with this recognition, this understanding of why he's going, he shows us something else about sacrifice. Every great sacrifice that he makes for us, whether it is in his life or his death, is done with a voluntary spirit. That's interesting when you think about that. That's why we have dialed into this word compulsion over these last weeks. Because that's a word the Bible actually uses. It's sort of saying the motivation is not something that we, are, we feel obliged to do. And maybe we can start there, but I would suggest that living there is not healthy in the Christian faith. What's happening is, whether it's life generosity, generosity with our finances, generosity with the way we care for people, generosity with our times, the idea is that our experience with Christ on the cross is so substantial that it like compels us to live that way. It's sort of like our hearts wrestle with the tension that that is the way. And to live in ways contrary to that, it, it creates a, like a spark in our heart where we have to sort out why, why we're not living that way. That's the idea of compulsion. And we see this in Jesus. There's sort of like no other way for him. He has to do this. But he also does this deeply because he wants to do this. John 10, 18. I want to read this to you. This is Jesus, you know, some 10 chapters prior to John 20 
talking about him being on the cross. Nobody even knows what he's talking about yet. He's giving all these like cryptic ideas about his life and his death. They, re- they figure out what all this is when he goes to the cross many, many, many months later. But here he's speaking about his life and he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command, he says, I've received from my father. That's an interesting verse when you think about him on the cross. He doesn't get drugged up there. He doesn't get forced up there. In these verses, what we read is that with increasing intensity, as he draws closer to the cross, Jesus makes it clear over and over again that his death for us only happens because he's going to let it happen. In other words, it's going to happen because he's made the decision to make it happen. Not only is that his choice, but it is the command he received from his father that he will take his life up and he will lay his life down and take it up again when he shows chooses. You think about that. There is no obligation. God has absolutely no obligation to do this for us. He could have called it a day and took the easy road of personal comfort and convenience, but he didn't. He looks at humanity beginning in the very story of Genesis. We talked about this two weeks ago. In the very origins of humanity as we understand them, the story of good and evil, the story of conflict and struggle, when we read about people, no matter what time frame in history, God looks at them and has this incredible empathy. He looks at them and takes the high road of voluntary heart-deep sacrifice. He inserts himself into the lives of humans and pursues them often when they choose to run from him. Same is true on the cross. Jesus was going up there whether we wanted it or not. That was his choice. And here's why knowing this truth really matters. I mean, it really matters. This is perhaps one of the greatest ways we can understand the type of love that Jesus has for us. And it's one of the greatest ways we can uh, sort of pray that that love would compel us to to live in the same vein. Jesus' actions show us there is nothing we can ever do that can cause him to stop loving us. When we are in Christ, that, that cannot be removed from us. No behavior can remove the love of Jesus from us. Now, I want to make a caveat here. He can certainly be displeased with us if our life aroma isn't pleasant to him. And I don't think we ever want to be on the side of God that, is, that sort of has him displeased with us. However, his love, what he has done on the cross from us cannot be, for us cannot be undone. His death for us on the cross shows us he has already chosen to take the worst that we could do to him. And he uses it as an opportunity to prove his love to us. And this is why we like to make the distinction here between grace and cheap grace. We should never look at this grace and want to take advantage of that. We should look at this grace and want to please our Father in heaven. We should want to love our Father in heaven. We should want to serve our Father in heaven. And the best way we can do that, one of the best ways anyways, is to live our lives in such a way that our lives are a pleasant aroma to God. And so what the cross shows us, this this sort of brief conversation in John 20, it sets the foundation pretty much for the whole mission of God. The cross really shows us that Christ's willingness to sacrifice himself for others was considered a sweet aroma to God. That's why this was an aroma. That's why the sacrifices in the Old Testament were a pleasant aroma to God. There was something much deeper happening than just the death of a man on the cross. The connection we need to point out here is that when we live sacrificially for others like Jesus did for us, it brings the same kind of joy and satisfaction to God. Our lives are a pleasant aroma to God because we are embodying the very life of Jesus. That's why we smell good to God. Not because of what we do or don't do. We smell good to God first and foremost because of what Jesus has done for us. And that smell increases with with God-centered aroma the more that we press into the life of Christ and live like him. It's sort of like if you have kids or have ever really been invested in somebody's life. Maybe you've been praying for somebody to get a job or you were coaching on an athletic field and 
you saw your son or your daughter hit a baseball for the first time, or they got a great job. There's something deeply pleasing about that. There's a sense of rightness in that. That's what's happening here. God looks at us and is pleased with us. Our Father in heaven is pleased with us. And so the point of this verse, of this teaching, sort of capping this series, is that God's people should be compelled to proclaim Jesus' message of peace and forgiveness. That's what's happening in John 20. He says, go and forgive others. You have the freedom to do that now. In other words, my, my sacrifice on the cross has given you the authority to tell others their forgiveness, th- there is the forgiveness of sin. I mean, he gives them like the full array, the full arsenal of what they need to accomplish this work. He gives them the power of his spirit, his love and his peace. It's a beautiful passage. And all of those things are really given to us today too. There is no difference. What they had, we have. And so since this truth is where Jesus left the disciples, I want to leave you this morning at the same place by giving you four very brief but practical steps you can take to structure your life in such a way that it becomes a platform for the redemptive mission of God like Jesus' life was. It's important that we not just read about these truths in John or in Ephesians and Corinthians and think about them as past tense events. They are truly past tense events, but they're past tense events that have an application for our life in this very moment. They're meant to set an example. We're meant to follow that example, Ephesians 5, so that we live in a very similar way. And so if you are a person who more naturally engages people, maybe you're the type of person who you hear these verses and you're very comfortable with them, that's great. Maybe these tools can help you to to be, uh, they can give you some wisdom in how to connect. But if you're the type of person who over the past three weeks has been hearing like, I've got to serve somebody I don't know, or maybe care for somebody and you've been horrified, like, you know, you hear these things and you're like, I can't talk to somebody about anybody, let alone a guy named Jesus. What if somebody disagrees? What What if they don't, you know, all of these fears sort of come into our head. What I want to say here is that this might be less complicated than we often think. I'm not telling you to go buy a bullhorn and stand on a street corner at Dunlawton and scream out to the world anything. I'm just telling you, if you live like Jesus did and you love and care for people in the way he did, you'll likely find that there are more opportunities to, to serve through word and deed than you might have even been aware of. And that is likely because God's spirit is already going. He's ahead of you in the places where you are. And so let this be either a starting point for you or an encouragement for you. But either way, I want to share them with you. The first thing I want to share with you is when we think about mission, when we think about actually living the way Jesus did, you cannot do that without the power of Jesus. And so the first and perhaps most obvious thing I want to say is we have to be a people who care about praying. And we'll have some we believe in prayer. I promise we're going to talk about that. But I want to say today we have to pray for God to make and keep our hearts sensitive to his mission. What that simply means is you cannot find a work in history. For the past year, I've been loosely reading through some of the great revivals we've seen in the world. And revival is simply a fancy word for the places God chose to work in pretty amazing ways. And one of the foundational elements in all revival, in the places God chooses to work, is that there's significant praying going on. In other words, people have sort of got to the end of their rope and they're asking God to be present in their lives in ways that they had not asked him before. This has to be the foundation of our lives when we talk about serving God in this way. Nothing great happens in the kingdom of God without praying. So it's important that we start this conversation by asking God to raise up people to to, to serve the mission. And when we pray for that, we have to ask God to not let us conveniently exclude ourselves from that prayer. It's very easy. Jesus even says this to, to pray for God to raise up laborers for the harvest. But we have to remember we're part of the harvest. God has placed you in a place where you likely are already blessing people. And maybe you're not even aware of this. You probably are blessing people in ways you're not even aware of. But if you are aware of it, there is an ever-expanding circle of the way God wants you to serve people. 
And so you will never fully value the things of God in your own life. Here's the importance of prayer. We'll never value the things of God in our own life without asking God to make the things of God important in our life. Because the things of God are not naturally the things of people. And so what happens is, is when we have that, that meeting with Jesus and those two worlds intersect, when our lives now are immersed in Jesus and Jesus' life is immersed in ours, what happens is the values of the kingdom of life get all blurry. We start thinking about things that didn't matter to us in the past. We start serving and caring in ways we never cared about because Jesus is consecrating us to him in ever-increasing ways. He's making us more like him. And all I'm asking you to do, and I will do this with you, is that we pray that God would always keep this burden on our hearts. We want his values to be our values. I like to say, and I've said this before, we cannot build God's kingdom without the king. It's his kingdom. We're invited to work in it. So we have to make sure he is at the throne of our hearts as we seek to do good work in his name. And so that's a very long-winded way of saying we have to pray. And if we pray, we can be confident that God will work. I'm convinced of that because he's already said he wants to. How he works, I cannot speak to. But the fact that he's going to work, we can speak to. That's what all of this says. Secondly, if you're a praying person, and I hope you are, it's important that you serve people, that you bless them into the kingdom. And what this sort of, sort of highlights everything I've been saying about word and deed. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, we are to let our lights shine before everyone, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The idea behind this is that we are lit up by Christ. And where we go, just like a flashlight illuminates the darkness, we are asked to sort of light up the areas of our life and our world where there might be shadows. And so today, many of our neighbors are more skeptical of religion than perhaps ever, sometimes for really good reasons and sometimes for really ridiculous reasons. No matter where somebody's coming from, though, or maybe you're in this room and you are coming from this place, it is important that deeds corroborate our good words. It is important if we say that we love people, that we actually love people. If we care enough to say that we serve people, then we, we serve them. What I'm saying is, is when, when God shows us a need, wherever that need is, we should do our best to follow the lead of God and bless that person by meeting it with the peace of Christ. So when somebody is tense or anxious, listen, encourage, be attentive to where their life is. If they have a physical need or a financial need, whatever is going on, Seize the opportunities when God presents them to you. And you'll notice in the, in the newsletter, there's a whole section about being mindful of this this year. There are going to be opportunities for you to represent Jesus well over this next month. Be aware of that. Pray about that. And watch God work if you follow his lead, because he will. So remember, when it comes to mission, there's always going to be a time to pray. We've discussed that. And a time to act. Jesus prays about the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he eventually dies upon it for us in Golgotha. He prays about what's about to happen, and then he gets up and goes to the cross. And the same is true with mission. When we pray for laborers, when we pray to serve and care, when we pray for the name of Jesus to go forward, we have to remember we're a part of that prayer. And we have to get off of our knees at some point and begin working. That's the bottom line. I also want to say, if we're working without being on our knees, we're likely going to be frustrated very quickly, and we might not have the spiritual stamina to see these things through. So there needs to be a balance of praying and serving. Step three we're praying and we are blessing. We're doing our best to just meet the needs that are around us. You have to make it a priority to be around people that do not believe in Jesus. And this is no knock against you if you don't believe in Jesus, nor is it a knock against people that you know that don't believe in Jesus. All of us at some point in our lives did not believe in Jesus the way we do now. For me, it was in my mid-20s. I, did not, I had an understanding of this guy's name, but there was not a belief or an affirmation of him being my king as there is now. There's never any judgment in this statement. 
when I talk about this. I just want us to understand that as those of, for those of us who are truly in Jesus, this can be a really hard statement to grasp because it's very common over time to see some Christian people only want to be around other Christian people. And you know how big a value community here is here at our church. We, we teach pretty hardcore that we have to be in each other's lives. We have to be willing to bear each other's burdens and care for each other. So don't hear me lessening the importance of Christian community. Hear me sort of layering, maybe balancing the scale of the fact that God wants us to love each other. But he does not want us to do that at the expense of our neighbors, no matter who they are or where they're coming from. Even people who are very far from him. Jesus sets this precedent. I mean, think about it. Heaven, the the incarnation, Christ coming to earth is the greatest example of this. He leaves heaven to be around a group of people, humanity, that are very, very far from him. And he sees that and he intervenes. He dwells amongst a world that is filled with unbelief and rejection. And he does it with an incredibly good heart of his own accord, voluntarily. So because of this, there are lots of unbelieving people in our lives that maybe we don't spend time with. And all I want to say is that wherever people are, we should not be looking at people in these categories. We should seek to bloom where God has planted us. And I promise you, no matter where you go, there are going to likely be people that do believe in Jesus and probably don't and have some objections or questions. And it's important that we actually are in tune to that, that we can, you know, love our brother or sister in Christ, but also be available in any way that God leads us to those who might have questions or skepticisms or even real needs that are folks who are, who, who might need some questions answered to figure out this whole thing. And so invite these folks into your lives. Watch how people invite you into theirs. Invite them over for supper. Invite them to your church. Just invite them to do something. Watch how God works. You'll never be able to bless people into the kingdom if you actually don't care for people that are not in the kingdom. It's sort of like what I said about hunger. You, gotta, you have to think a little bit about what it was like to not be in Christ and experience the importance of his grace to maybe be more compelled to share it with others in whatever way God leads. The last thing I'll say, and this is where we'll officially close, is that all of this is, is incredibly important truth. It's all coming from Scripture. Even these steps that I'm talking about here, there isn't, you'll find every one of these rooted somewhere in the Bible, and we can really begin all of this with Jesus. Every action step can sort of be tracked in the way he left heaven and came to earth. The most important step of all of this is perhaps this. Follow God where he leads you. And so if you're praying and you're blessing and you're engaging, at some point what you have to do is you have to walk through the door when God opens it. You cannot let what we've talked about today, neither can I, be another set of sermon notes in the margin of our Bible or on our phones. We can't let this be another teaching about mission. We really have to let Christ's words and actions about mission, this has to be a heart-deep teaching that compels us in life. We've got to be faithful. That's the bottom line. Fruitful, please hear me here. Fruitful, has, we have nothing to do with that. And I think this is where we get bent out of shape here. Oftentimes, we, we skip faithfulness. We've been commanded to bless. But we have not anywhere in the Bible been commanded to bring about fruit. Can't do that. You and I cannot drag the kingdom in a direction. But what often happens is we, we step out of this role because we're immediately thinking fruit. What if they fill in the blank? What if they do? What if they don't? That is not our responsibility to think about. What happens, fruit, is God's responsibility. So if you relieve yourself from that pressure of trying to fabricate fruit and you just press into faithfulness, a beautiful truth arises out of this. All God asks of you is that you be faithful to bless people in the name of Christ where he leads you. That is it. If you do that, your aroma lights up the heavenly realms. That is it. The outcome of that 
there's nothing we can do to shape it one way or another. We can input our lives into it, for sure, but outcomes are God's responsibility. It really gives us this beauty, to this beautiful truth to press into the kingdom of God without creating pressures in our lives to think we have to make something happen. It will likely also give you long-suffering, meaning if you're, not, if you're not concerned with driving results, if you're just concerned with loving people and caring for them, well, you can do that for a very long time. If you recognize this is the way Jesus treats you, then you recognize his long-suffering with you, his long-suffering with me. Be faithful and let fruit be in the hands of God. So just like the disciples, fear, whole message on this, fear is what almost always keeps us from doing this stuff. There is, without doubt, a fear question we can sort of provide with every single step that I mentioned this morning. Well, I don't know how to pray. I don't, what if I start praying and God asks me to do things? Fear. Well, what if there's a need to bless somebody and I can't do it? Fear. What if I'm actually walking around in my name? Fear, 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 fear. That's what it is. What if I follow God where he leads me and he disrupts my life a little bit? Fear. What happens with the disciples is they get over the fear. They leave the room and go change the world. And every one of us, if we will just leave the room, can do the same thing. And so I want to encourage you all, never assume anything when it comes to these things with people. Trust in God and be faithful to his work. And you might be surprised at what God is already doing in the hearts of the people in your lives. You might be surprised at what he starts doing in your life. Remember, you are following the work of the Holy Spirit. You're, you're sort of coasting on the coattails of God's peace, his promises, and the power of his Holy Spirit. That's what happens in John 20. So give God a chance to show you what needs to happen and pursue it when he does. So as we enter our response time, I want to ask you to, to really, you know, last week was the Thanksgiving message, but I want to say it again. We want to be thankful for mission. Everything we've talked about doing is something Jesus has already done for us. And that is amazing. We are following in his example. We want to be thankful for that that God has offered us his son. But we don't want to just stop at Thanksgiving. We want Thanksgiving to be the thing that compels our hearts to love those whom he has put in our lives in the very same way. And so as we close today, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about how he's put his grace in your heart? What is he saying to you about his mission? And what is it you will do about it when you leave this place today?